Alright, welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of the Baylor Law Criminal Law Society podcast. I'm your host, Garrett Farrell, and I'm joined here today by our new president, Emma Catlett. How are you doing today, Emma? I'm good, Garrett. How are you? Good. And we have a very special guest today, our first ever United States Magistrate Judge, Judge Mansky of the United States Western District of Texas. Um, Judge Mansky's been appointed since August 1st, 2001, but I will let him tell his story. How are you doing today, Judge? I am doing great, Garrett. And Garrett and Emma, thank you all for having me here this afternoon. Look forward to visiting with you. Thank you for, for being, being here. here. Absolutely. Well, I graduated from undergraduate back in 1983 at Baylor with a degree in philosophy. And then I ended up moving to San Antonio and going to St. Mary's and graduated there in 1986. And then I had the opportunity to come back and clerk for the U.S. District Judge in the exact same building in which we're sitting now. And I did that for a little over two years from 1986 to 1988. And then I joined a law firm in San Antonio called Plunkett, Gibson & Allen, where I started doing automobile product liability defense work, primarily representing Ford Motor Company, and then worked that into uh, doing different types of National Trial Council work for Ford Motor Company. And then I moved up I-35 from San Antonio to Austin uh, to the law firm of Brown McCarroll, which is now Hush Blackwell. And I was a capital partner there and then left in 2001 to accept this position and have been here for the past 22 years and love it. Very long storied career. That's that's great. In 30 so, seconds. Yeah, I know. Very, uh, very impressive. Um, so it sounds like a lot of your career, almost all of your career was a civil career. Um, and of course, we're on the Baylor Law Criminal Law Society podcast. Um, so our main focus will be sort of the criminal law stuff. Um, so I guess my first question would be, with you doing a lot of civil stuff in your career, how did um, kind of taking over some of the criminal aspects of being a magistrate judge, um, how did that go for you when you first started? Well, I think it really helped me that I had the opportunity for a little over two years to serve as a briefing attorney or law clerk for United States District Judge. So I had the opportunity for over two years to see numerous criminal trials, numerous criminal proceedings, and also came down and watched the magistrate judge at the time, Dennis Green, and became very familiar with what the magistrate judge as well as the district judge do on both a criminal as well as a civil side. And I also had taken a few criminal appointments when I was in private practice. When you got admitted into the Austin Division of the Western District at the time, they required you to take a criminal appointment whether you wanted to or not. So that certainly uh, was a learning experience as well. And I think coming in as a judge, it's easier to learn the nuances of criminal law and criminal procedure than it is civil law and civil procedure because of the myriad different types of civil cases that are involved. Right. You get a little bit more of a narrow focus, I guess, at the criminal law, especially at the federal level. That's right. And there are only a set number of procedures uh, that you're having to resolve, typically. So, Judge, what does your docket look like right now, and how has that kind of changed since you took the bench in 2001? Sure, it's changed a lot recently, and that's because of the onboarding of Judge Albright, who has such an extensive patent docket. And because he had such an extensive patent docket when he was appointed, 
I handle generally most of the pretrial civil matters as well as all of the criminal matters other than sentencing of felonies and jury trials for felonies. And then in April of 2001, Judge Gilliland uh, was appointed as a second magistrate judge in Waco, and we now split the civil docket, and he assists Judge Albright with the patent docket, and I handle all of the uh, felony pretrial cases as well as the Fort Hood docket. That's great. Um, and I've sat in a few times on some criminal proceedings here while I've interned here, um, mainly just the kind of hearings and stuff like that. But I know you're very active in like the Veterans Court, and um, you are even going to Taiwan, I believe, for a drug program. Sure, I'll go ahead and, and start uh, at the beginning. Yeah. P- part of my responsibilities once I was appointed was to be able to handle criminal cases committed by civilians on Fort Hood which is just outside of Killeen and within the Western District of Texas. And also any cases committed by active duty soldiers that commit DWIs, they opted out of the Military Justice Act for consistency of punishment. Shortly after I was appointed, 9-11 happened. I noticed an uptick in DWIs, marijuana possession, uh, assault family violence, all misdemeanors. And then we started getting a lot of cases involving veterans who were self-medicating with alcohol and marijuana to be able to help with post-traumatic stress disorder, traumatic brain injury, military sexual trauma, and the like. And then a few years passed and we made the decision to start the very first federal veterans treatment court operating on a United States military base. And so we did that in 2015 and have been operating for the past eight years. As part of that, a group called the National Association of Drug Court Professionals. They have a subdivision within their organization called Justice for Vets. And it happens to have as one of their legal counsel a gentleman named General Butch Tate. And he used to be a colonel or staff judge advocate uh, out at Fort Hood back early in my career. And he had heard that we had started a veterans treatment court and that we operated it a little differently. So he wanted to come down and check it out. So that led to me doing some consulting uh, for Justice for Vets. And as a result of that consulting that I've done, say over the past five or six years, I recently was invited to travel with a group from the National Association of Drug Court Professionals to Taiwan to talk to them about judicial reform, alternatives to incarceration, treatment courts, how they work, and how we do it, and best practices in operating them. That's very cool. I think being able to help the veterans and everything like that is really important. Um, Ever since I've moved to Texas, I've noticed a lot of the veterans courts and different state courts and stuff like that. So getting to see it at the federal level too, I think is um, very impressive and it speaks well to the uh, court system, I think, that we're trying to give back to the veterans that have served all of us. Great, and if anyone ever wants to observe our veterans court, all they need to do is reach out to my courtroom deputy and or call up here and we can give you a Zoom link so you can sit in and watch. You can't watch staffing, but you can, of course, watch what we do in Vets Court. And it's pretty interesting and a pretty moving experience. 
Yeah, I bet. I would I would definitely sit in on that. So I will make sure to get the link from you at some point. I encourage you to. <laughs> yeah, Judge, that's fascinating. Actually, the internship that I did last summer, um, it was in Montgomery County, and they have a veterans court as well. I never got to sit in on it, but it's just a fascinating program. One thing that I learned when I started doing research on veterans treatment courts, I saw and went throughout Texas to look at different courts, and I saw that the typical model involved a veteran coming out of the gallery, keeping his back or her back to the audience, and appearing up at the bench with the judge in a robe in an elevated position with the defense counsel to one side and the prosecutor to the other, and the judge just having a brief conversation uh, with the veteran that was appearing before them. To me, I couldn't think of a more anxiety-producing scenario for someone with PTSD to have to keep their back to the wall in a superior, inferior position being in a lower position than the judge up on the bench. And that didn't fit well with my personality. So I decided to push the two council tables together and kind of create more of a round table approach where I sit at the head of the table, but I'm not wearing a robe, I'm dressed much more casual, and I spend three to seven minutes with each veteran, you know, trying to ask open-ended questions using motivational interviewing uh, to get them to open up and talk. And one of the nice things I discovered about it that I didn't see in the traditional Veterans Treatment Court model was you end up having a lot of peer-to-peer communication and they end up holding each other accountable. So in addition to me being in that position of holding them accountable and you know encouraging them in their success, they also have their vet- fellow veterans in our program, we call them VIPs, you know, just to give that nice positive connotation. And I really love how that dynamic works well. Yeah, I think it's so important to be able to help rehabilitate people, especially people going through PTSD and everything like that, um, and not just lock them away and um, throw away the key, I guess, in a sense. So No, particularly when a lot of their problems were caused by the experiences they encountered when they were overseas and that they didn't previously have any substance use issues and they started using to be able to mask or deal with the anxiety and the symptoms uh, that they were put into, not by their own creation. Uh, I think giving them an opportunity in a post-plea diversionary program to have those charges dismissed if they successfully complete a 12 to 18-month program is a great thing. Yeah. It's really inspiring to hear you know, how successful those programs have been. Um, I was wondering, so what's the process for a veteran joining that diversion program? Is there some sort of application process that you know their attorney would kind of initiate for them? Absolutely. We try and let them know from the get-go, from your initial appearance, that this is something that is available to you. We've got a large standee outside of the court uh, room at Fort Hood that's about six feet tall that talks about the veterans court process. We have brochures up on the wall um, that talk about the veterans court application process and who you need to contact to be able to join. Pre-trial who they meet with prior to appearing before me for the initial appearance, ask if they're a veteran, lets them know about the program, and it gives them an alternative to incarceration, perhaps. It's a lot of work that they can bring up with their attorney and see if it's something they might be interested in applying. I think in the beginning, a lot of the applicants who end up joining the court are just looking to get the charges dismissed and it's all about doing time and not doing treatment. 
but by the end of the program they forget about the fact that the charges are going to be dismissed and they're more focused on the positive changes in their life and the enduring treatment solutions they're learning that they can apply as they continue to to grow and learn in life. Yeah, it sounds to be like the kind of the new goal of the court system is to just rehabilitate people, make them feel better about themselves and go back into society in a uh, refreshed state, I guess, in a sense, which is nice to hear. I think as we, as judges, learn, the science has developed. We used to think addiction was a choice, and I don't know that all judges have made that jump, but, you know, addiction is a disease, and diseases need treatment. You know, if somebody has diabetes and eats some bluebell ice cream and cake, you know, you're not going to punish them. You know, you're going to, if you're a physician, do some type of treatment. And the same thing, if you've got addiction and you can't control, it's not a choice, you know, you're using because of some chemical issue or medical issue, well then we want to give you treatment as long as you're not hurting others in the process. Of course. Absolutely, that's a great, you know, way to look at look at the situation. Um, I was wondering, what's the expanse of this program? Is it specifically just in Fort Hood as of now? Or I guess kind of the jurisdiction as a whole of the program? We've been ta- we've taken several cases outside of Fort Hood from the Waco Division uh, where someone has been a veteran. Uh, we've even taken a couple of felony cases uh, in the program so they have an opportunity if they successfully complete to get a felony uh, dismissed. We've also accepted um, supervised release revocation in federal court. Once you complete whatever jail sentence you receive, you're then placed on supervised release for a period of time. And if that potentially gets revoked in lieu of revocation, you can complete vet's court and then have your supervised release term dismissed. Are there any offenses that are prohibited from, that, that will prohibit a veteran from being able to be part of this program? Generally, any type of aggravated felony, mm-hmm. um, naturally any type of sexual offense would deem you um, um, enabled to be able to participate. Um, historically, we've primarily taken Class A uh, misdemeanor drug and alcohol-related offenses, Class B alcohol-related uh, offenses, and felonies have typically been on the revocation side as they've related to substance use or possession of a firearm by someone who's previously been convicted of a felony. We've been pretty limited in the number of felonies uh, that we've been taking. Well, I guess uh, we can kind of shift focus. I think we've talked a lot about the Veterans Court, but um, for law students that are maybe interested in criminal law at the federal level, um, what sort of recommendations would you have for a law student, I guess, that's interested in criminal law? I think the best thing that you can do is intern uh, for a district or magistrate judge and you're going to have the opportunity to be exposed to so much criminal hearings, so much behind the scenes and getting to interact with the court on why'd you do that? What was your thinking behind this? Um, Why didn't you follow the recommendation of the probation department or the U.S. attorney and go that route? Why did you do this? And getting to have opportunity, I think, to pick a judge's brain during an internship Not all judges are that accessible, some are, but if you happen to work for a judge that that is that accessible, I think that is a great way to get your foot in the door. And then after law school, if you had the opportunity to come serve as a 
briefing attorney or law clerk for a magistrate judge or a U.S. District Court judge, I strongly encourage it. Whether you want to do civil or criminal law, it's going to give you a great background and it will give you very good confidence about your abilities when you're able to get out into private practice. You've got a much greater practical application of how things work in the courtroom rather than just looking at it from a practice or theoretical standpoint. Yeah, I can definitely second the uh, field placement interning thing. Um, I think getting to see all the criminal docket uh, at the federal level has been really eye-opening to me because um, the state level and the federal level are so much different than I think a lot of people realize. Um, one of the first things that caught my eye was the uh, open pleas that happen at the federal level, um, which is something that you never really see at the state level, I guess, because of the sort of plea bargaining um, aspect at the state level. So um, I, and think I think another reason for that is, is because of the existence of the federal sentencing guidelines mm -hmm. where Congress has set certain advisory punishment ranges for different criminal offenses which are enhanced based upon your criminal history and other relevant conduct that may come into play. Yeah, yeah, the, uh, the federal level is just so different with the uh, sentencing guidelines and everything. Um, so getting that exposure I think is really important. I can vouch as well for you know, interning with a judge. Um, that's what I did last summer in Montgomery County. Um, she wasn't a federal judge, but it was an incredible experience just to be able to pick her brain and you know, after any kind of hearing or something like that, ask her why she did what she did and if she had been the prosecutor or the defense attorney, what she would have done differently in that situation. So it was just great to be able to pick someone's brain with so much experience. Absolutely, and I strongly encourage people to do it, whether it's at the state or federal level. Are there any other um, treatment courts that you know of just in in the Waco area, in McLennan County, or in this district? Sure. I know we also have a veterans treatment court uh, run by Judge Coley. I know that Judge David Yagam also runs a DUI uh, mm -hmm. court. And I'm not sure if we have a mental health court in McLennan County or not. We may. I'm not sure. Well, you've hit on about one-tenth of what I do on <laughs> the criminal side generally, and that is we have Veterans Treatment Court every other Friday mm -hmm. out at Fort Hood. The rest of the time as it comes to criminal procedure is spent on so many other uh, diverse matters. The magistrate judge is responsible not only for handling any search warrant request, our criminal com complaint request for the numerous counties that make the Waco Division within the Western District of Texas, uh, but also for handling any what we call 12 A's, B's, or C's, which are all related to uh, probation uh, revocation or modification of probation um, conditions. Um, additionally, we routinely handle initial appearances. We handle preliminary hearings. We handle detention hearings. We handle motions to suppress and other pretrial motions. We handle the guilty pleas or rearrangements. We also handle the original arraignment. Uh, we handle um, probation revocation and supervised release revocation hearings. And not all magistrate judges do that. It's sort of unique uh, to the Waco Division. And uh, Judge Albright also utilizes his magistrate judges to preside over jury selection for criminal trials as well as also civil trials for that matter. So a lot of duties just on the criminal side plus a very active civil docket as I mentioned. Why is it that Waco is different from other districts in that respect? 
It's because Judge Albright is so busy on the patent docket. Last year, we had twelve to fifteen hundred patent cases. Wow, that's that's a lot of cases <laughs> compared to him coming when we only had about three hundred civil cases a year. Wow. So you can see how that would take a tremendous amount of additional time and also require the need for a new magistrate judge. So how do you sort of handle search warrants as a judge? What are you looking for? Um, do you handle them? Um, and how frequently do you handle them, I guess? Daily. And you're looking to determine whether or not the affidavit uh, establishes probable cause. And uh, there are some times that they don't and you don't sign them. What law enforcement agencies do you primarily work with? Is it different than at the state level or not so much? Oh, 100% different from the state level because most of the prosecutors at the state level or the judges are getting warrants from, you know, here in McLennan County, the McLennan County Sheriff's Department, the Waco PD, any of the surrounding uh, local PDs, whereas we're getting them from federal agencies. Um, on illegal reentry cases. We're getting affidavits from Immigration Customs Enforcement. Mm -hmm. We're getting affidavits from the FBI, from the Secret Service, uh, from Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, or ATF. Um, we get them from the U.S. Postal Department uh, um, on postal fraud. I mean, we get them from uh, the FDA uh, if they're investigating uh, different uh, Medicare and Medicaid fraud. Uh, cases. I mean, just a myriad of federal agencies that we can get them from. So there obviously is a lot that you work on day to day. Um, do you have you know a favorite kind of area or field to work in? Do you have a favorite or? Goodness, I really enjoy getting to be in court. I suppose that's my favorite. I like contested hearings. I like it when there are issues of law that are a little sticky uh, that need to be decided. Um, typically. Uh, I have learned over time that the longer uh, the affidavit in support of the warrant, the more carefully I have to look to determine that there's probable cause. Typically, uh, if it's there, you can get to it pretty quickly. Um, so I think uh, an economy of words uh, is a good thing, provided it spells out the necessary uh, information to be able to support uh, a probable cause. But we have a large influx of uh, legal reentry cases in the Waco division and that's because anytime anyone is arrested and they're brought to either the Highway 6 jail or the Jack Harville Detention Center you know they run fingerprint uh, searches on them they find out that they're here illegally they refer the case to ICE and so we have a, a large number each week. Do you ever notice from like um, presidential regime changes that the federal like, criminal cases that you see, do they ever differ? Like what amount of like legal reentry cases you may get or? Um... Right, we're probably seeing less illegal reentry cases under this administration than we might have seen under the last administration, but that's a guess. Mm -hmm. I mean, just based upon, you know, the feel of it, I've not done a deep dive into it to see how many cases right. we've had under each. Do you see a lot of, so you see a lot of re illegal reentry cases here in the Waco division. Um, I think I was talking to a, a U.S. attorney recently and he said they had like almost 77 a day down at the uh, El Paso area down that way. Um, I assume you don't see Rio as and frequently. Yeah. Quite a few, all within the Western District. Yeah, and that's a federal only thing, so 
you only see those at the federal level, which is um, interesting to see. Because I saw a couple of Spanish-speaking dockets where there was the um, illegal reentry cases, and um, I thought those were interesting where they have the translator and everything going through the uh, process of that. Yeah. But so you mentioned Judge Albright has a huge patent docket. Other than those cases, what I guess are kind of the biggest number of cases that you see coming through your docket? Well, on the criminal side, it would be the immigration cases. It would be possession of a controlled substance or conspiracy to possess with intent to distribute. Um, we have a lot of offenses against children. Uh, we have bank robbery cases. Uh, we have a very wide-ranging uh, federal criminal docket, but it can be on things even from, you know, selling uh, rhino horns. Uh, we've had cases like that. We've had uh, a lot of uh, fraud cases of people who are responsible uh, in a fiduciary role for managing money uh, and the like. Those are uh, a lot of the cases that we see on the criminal side. And then everything else uh, that's non-patent is more the general civil, and that is a wide variety as well from product liability, personal injury, uh, employment Title VII cases, um, you're going to see IDEA Act involving uh, education plans, uh, a lot of school law uh, cases, you're going to see some cases involving uh, different constitutional issues, um, freedom of association, freedom of speech uh, that all come up. I mean it's a, a great exciting variety. One of the things I really love about the job is each day is different. Um, we're fortunate here that a typical magistrate judge position would involve handling just some of the pretrial criminal and you'd be handling um, Title 42 United States Code Section 1983 civil rights cases brought by uh, prisoners, although it can also be brought by non-prisoners against cities and officers and the like, as well as habeas corpus petitions, people having trying to get their convictions set aside, as well as social security appeals. Well, because of the vast number of caseload that we have on the civil side, we are fortunate to have uh, sort of a uh, pro se plaintiff division that sort of works on those and makes uh, uh, prepares recommendations to Judge Albright on how to deal with those so we as magistrate judges can be freed up uh, to work on some of the more complex uh, civil litigation and also do more on the pretrial uh, felony docket to free him up to be able to handle those 1,200 to 1,500 uh, patent cases filed a year. Do you see a lot of uh, pro se prisoners or um, defendants at the federal level? You do when it comes to 1983 civil rights cases and habeas corpus cases. Um, very rarely uh, will you find uh, someone in a criminal case that is wanting to represent themselves and we have a colloquy that we go through with them um, and strongly try and discourage them to represent themselves. And if they do decide to represent themselves, we encourage them to get standby counsel. One thing that is really interesting but seems kind of complicated to understand are the habeas corpus cases. Um, could you kind of explain you know, what, how those work um, in your experience? Sure, absolutely. Um, typically they are filed by somebody in prison. If you're ultimately ended up being released while you're in prison, 
then your habeas corpus is typically moot because there's no reason uh, to be able to uh, continue with that if you've already gotten the relief, which is release uh, that you've been uh, uh, challenging. Uh, typically, they come up a lot when somebody has missed their deadline for appeal uh, and is wanting to uh, challenge that. Sometimes they are uh, sufficiency of the evidence uh, claims. Uh, there's just a vast myriad uh, reason uh, that those need to be brought, but they also have to be brought under the AEDPA within a certain period of time, and there are uh, other requirements that need to be complied with. They can also be complex as well, but it is a strong uphill battle uh, for an inmate to be able to be successful on a habeas corpus uh, petition. You don't see them being granted except in very rare and unique circumstances. That's really interesting. Um, it does unfortunately look like we're running slightly low on time, but we were wondering, is there any you know, parting advice that you'd like to give to prospective law students, current law students, people who want to practice in the field of criminal law? I think it is so important that if you are going to choose to enter into the criminal field that you represent your clients zealously. Uh, that you just don't go through the motions, that you come into court prepared, and that, for instance, just if you have to appear for a detention hearing, make sure that you present the court with a release plan, uh, that you've done your homework, call witnesses, uh, do whatever you can to be able to uh, assist your client. Unfortunately, on occasion, you'll find uh, some attorneys that may not meet with their clients until uh, they end up coming to court, and that's the first time. I don't think that's acceptable. Um, I think representing a client zealously involves going to see them in jail uh, prior to the first time that they make an appearance here. And, you know, I always believe, as Coach John Wooden said, failing to prepare is preparing to fail. And if you don't do that legwork in advance and come into court ready to go, having done your homework, you're going to fail and not be successful. Uh, you can't just, you know, half it. You've got to go all in, if you will. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Judge. This has been great, really educational about the federal system. Um, and thank you to all our listeners for joining in, and we'll see you next time.